Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. We're recording on Tuesday, weirdly, <laughs> December 13th at 6 p.m. Pacific time, which is 9 p.m. Eastern time. It's a weird one, Rebecca Shinsky. We're at the end of the year. It is. We're mopping up. I got jury duty, so I've been out. We got to get, you're, you're off on vacation here pretty quick. We're trying to squeeze this in at, at the end. Um, I would characterize myself as loopy. At this point, I think that's fair to say. <laughs> Given what our um, pre-show was like, I think that's fair. Yeah, I forgot all of the things that we do to <laughs> podcast. I did my checklist open, so if I were a pilot, I would have flown us into the side of a mountain. Um, but luckily, you were there to co-pilot and at least uh, pull up on the yoke at the last second. And this is our year in review. And uh, as is my kind of state of mind right now, Rebecca had put together an agenda, which I didn't look at. Actually, I didn't even know existed, let alone look at. Um, so I did my agenda separately, and we're going to kind of make it up as we go along. We've decided to pivot into doing the stories kind of like we did our favorite books of the year, or books of the year, which was on your list. And I have a list, you have your own list, and we'll see what the honorable mentions are, and kind of move on from there. Um, it's been a year in books, Rebecca. I guess historically speak. well, let's we can do this at the top, and we'll do our first sponsor. Was this a median interesting year in books, more interesting than normal, less interesting than normal? Where where would you put this on the the general, like, um, news flow for for our little part of the world? I think high end of median, maybe, or in, like, somewhere in the third quartile, but not that top one. Yeah. Um, That sounds right to me. Yeah. There was no big, there was no one big sea change. We didn't get a merger. We didn't get a Harper Lee prequel that was packaged as a new no, novel you're right there was nothing really industry shattering but there we had some big stories and some interesting stuff and there was actually so much of it that it felt like there was nothing <laughs> like this morning i was sitting down to do this agenda because i was like oh right we were moving this schedule around jeff is on the jury this week so we're not going to collaborate on this thing because i can't reach you while you're doing that so let me just like yes. think about the year and I think I got three things just pulled out of my brain before I was in our work slack with the editorial team. Like, can someone else help me remember what happened this year, yeah, please? Right. Media. Yeah, I, I would say I, I would say I mean there were a lot of um there were a lot of there wasn't a single takeaway. Well, except for maybe one thing, and even that was weird, that's been smeared over like an eighteen month to twenty four mm-hmm. month window. Um, we didn't have a big book of the year. We didn't have a phenomenon. And I think for me to be in like the top decile of interesting years, you kind of need a phenomenon. You need a Fifty Shades. You need you need a crawdad. I mean, as much as that makes me nuts, I, I want The Martian. I want something we're talking about a similar book or there's a breakout. You know, you need a Gone Girl. You get something. You get a Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. You get a, you get a Ghost at a Watchman like that. 
Um, and then the other thing that's useful is if an English speaker wins a Nobel Prize. I'm just going to say that's true. Mm-hmm. If Bob Dylan, I mean, right, if you don't agree, that's a big story. That's an interesting story. Mean, um, when Alice Monroe won the Nobel or, or Ishiguro, something like that. There's an English language Nobel we can really talk about. Or, or someone Louise passes Glick. away. Yeah, well, Louise Glick, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, we got made hay out of that. I'm not sure anybody who didn't know Louise Glick before kind of knows it now, um, knows her that much now. But and then we didn't have like a Morrison passing or, you know, this happens from time to time where we have a real chance to reflect on somebody's life. And some people passed away this year, um, but it wasn't a household name or a syllabus known name, I guess. Households Mm -hmm. is not really the 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 um, circles we travel in, but let's call it syllabus known name for the people who (laughs) if you know, you know, Um, and I think even, well, that, to say more is to get into the particular list. So yeah. I, I think it was pretty interesting, and it's always hard to remember what happened at the beginning of the year, especially some of these things like, oh, that was in March of this year, which feels like 9,000 um, years ago. So It really anything, does. Anything else in the preamble kind of way before we get into a sponsor and then the actual stories? Yeah, no, let's jump into it. All right, here's our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books, an imprint of source books that celebrates authors and uplifts readers. When 19-year-old Abby Bly gets the opportunity to study abroad for a year in London, it's the perfect chance to finally slip out from under the thumb of her beloved but overbearing retired rock star father. When she arrives at her gorgeous new flat, she's shocked to discover her roommates are all charming, funny, insufferably attractive boys. And soon she's lying to her father about her living situation and falling for not one, but two men she can't have, her rugby player roommate and a broody musician with a girlfriend. If there's any hope of Abby finding love, answers, or a future in London, she'll have to decide which rules in hearts might be worth breaking. Pick up Girl Abroad by L. Kennedy for L. Kennedy's signature angst, drama, and humor. It's like my Oxford year meets we met in December. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books, an imprint of source books that celebrates authors and uplifts readers for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of Anita De Monte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. So this is one of my most anticipated books of the year. It follows two women of color who are in the art world, but who also kind of sit outside of it because of a lack of privilege. So the story is told from both of their perspectives and it moves back and forth through time. So in 1985, Anita DeMonte is a rising star in the art world and she's found dead in New York City, right? And then in 1998, Raquel, a third year art history student, becomes involved with an older, more privileged art student and finds herself rising up the social ranks as a result. But then she also stumbles upon Anita's story and she sees parallels between Anita's story and her own. So Anita DeMonte Laughs Last is a propulsive, witty examination of power. Make sure to pick it up. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez for sponsoring this episode. Um, you know, let's bef- try to... Can we, what? Go ahead. Well, I was say, before we get into 
the stories, we do have to mention some Book Riot stuff real quickly. Oh, yes, because, we do. Yes, yes, yes. Because we, we have shouts, marching orders. And yeah, we got shouts. Yes. We got to do some in-house shouts. And so first one is an easy one because y'all listen to the show. You've heard us talk about it. But we do have this tailored book recommendation service. We call it TBR. If you know, you know. And if you are looking for a holiday gift, I don't know, by the time you're listening to this, it might be December 19th. Yeah. So if you need something kind of last minute that you don't have to wait on shipping or the supply chain, Taylor Book Recommendations is a great option for the book lover in your life. It's like Stitch Fix for books. You can give a book lover one round of it or a whole year. You can give them digital recommendations, which are not ebooks. It's just recommendations that come to your gift recipient mm-hmm. by email. Or you can give them hardcover books that they will receive in the mail. They get notified you gave them the gift. They fill out a profile about what they like to read, what they don't like to read, what some of their favorite other kinds of media are so we get their vibe. If they have any deal breakers, if they have any kinds of content that they want to be warned about, recent favorites, all that kind of stuff, they get matched to a real life human, one of our bibliologists whose taste and expertise is similar to what they're looking for. And then they get a round of three books or book recommendations customized just for them. So you can check that out at mytbr.co slash gift. We'll put a link in the show notes. And that is that. Also, if you're into it, Book Riot's Best Books of 2022 came out this week. Yeah, We are not the last, but among the last to release the list. We respected December this year. Good list. Interesting list. I had a little bit of an existential crisis because I've only read one of them. Oh, I didn't do my count. Uh, you continue talking and I'll do my yeah, count. Yeah, it was, but I learned a lot of, like, I picked up a lot of good recommendations, which is what happens this time every year. And the 2023 Read Harder Challenge has been announced. So if you are new around Book Riot and you have not heard of it, Read Harder is an annual challenge that we do every year, because that's what annual means, with the intention of helping you expand your reading life. There are 24 tasks that are spread out. You know, well, you can do them all at once or you can spread them out over the course of the 12 months where you read a book that fulfills each one something like read a book about a trans character written by a trans author listen to an audiobook that's narrated by a person of color and written by a person of color all kinds of stuff just intended to help you expand your reading universe so we'll put links to both of those in the show notes as well if you want to get into best books of the year or the read harder challenge and i bet if you really wanted to do it, you could find some books that satisfy Read Harder Challenge tasks on the Book Riot's Best Books of the Year list. Eight is my number, by the way. Oh, so wow. There you go. Okay. You do you want to hear what they there. are while I'm, bra- while I'm bragging? Yeah. Babel, mm-hmm. uh, Black Cake, which is yours. That's the one mm-hmm. you read. Book Lovers, Cult Classic. Uh, this is fun internet here. Um, the, uh, the cartographers, which you refuse yeah. to read for reasons I don't understand. <laughs> I don't refuse the hacienda. To read it. I mean, are you reading it right now? Have you no, read it? But I don't I'm know saving it, it as an audiobook for a Shinsky road trip. Unlikely animals and when women were dragons. Okay. Those are the ones I've read. I think that's eight. It's a good list. Uh, yeah, it's good. It's good. Some of them made my books of the year list. I, I had a thought. Again, this is a lot of throat clearing before I get into it. I recognize my own rightness about best books of the year's list coming out earlier in the season for practical gift mm-hmm. gifting reasons. I think there's a very good use to that. And I think we're waiting. This is about as late as we can get this out and have people use it to buy anything as a gift, if that makes sense. 
I propose for us for next year, just as something to think about for this show, not not the the site. That's not within our. We don't run the site. I mean, we do, but you know, Sharif and Vanessa they put that together and they do a great job doing it. Our show, I think, I would propose this because I've read several books since we did our favorite books of the year, and I'm not sure my list would be the same because mm. I'm still reading 2022 front list. So maybe we do our. We like I kind of like that giftable thing that we did. So maybe there's a yeah. gifting kind of episode. And then we kick off January with the draft. And then we do a year in review. It's like, okay, 22, 20, you've read all the books you're going to read in 20. And I'm going to read more this year. And you will too. You got a plane mm-hmm. ride, you got a vacation. So I wonder if a more, um, I don't know, if we're actually doing a review, let's let's do a review. Because I'm into we can do this. both at the same time. Yeah, I think our... Well, no, our first Patreon episode of 2023 is going to be our winter draft, but the one after that yes. is planned to be what we read on our winter vacation. And I put that in specifically so we could talk about mm-hmm. all of the front list that we read after we did best books of the right. year. So yeah, let's yeah. just wait next year. Well, we can spread it out. Because we don't operate like um, other publications that you know, they assign out reading and they've done all their front list reading for their coverage by this time this year. Like we continue to read and some of it is because it's personal. Um, and that crossover means that are, we're, we're not really done. I mean, I'll be reading front list until December 30th mm-hmm. of this year. I think I'm going to flip the calendar though. Sorry okay. if I didn't get to you 2022. Um, I'm not going to do quite as much, but I'm going to, I like the front list experiment. Um, yeah. I liked, I liked, this, I liked having yeah, you along. It's been yielded interesting things. The- on the front list journey this year. That's been really fun um, to be able to talk about more of it. And I did just, I just finished Solito the other night. And if we Uh, had done our our best of lists, you know, later, that would have definitely made mine. What a recommendation. I don't know how you listened to that I wondered about that. You texted that me. I'm sorry, I didn't text you back. I was in jury duty, but you were saying, (laughs) oh boy, basically. It was just a powerful one. But yeah, I'm going to do a bunch more front list. I loaded up, actually, I'll save this man, this is really a lot of throat clearing, but I will save some of it for the Patreon. But I loaded up on paperbacks of Mm. books that you recommended during the gifting recommendation show, but stuff I hadn't read yet. I I bought three or four Ah. things that I was like, oh, that sounds good. And I'm going to take those on vacation. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Is there cartographers among them? No, because it's not a road trip. I'm saving that. I really do think that the cartographers is going to be a perfect Shinsky road trip choice. It's like lined up. But I don't think mm. we have a road trip until May. So just you're just going to have to wait. I was doing some of my winter draft um, homework. I had a Publishers Weekly with me. I kept a couple Publishers Weekly as jury duty, and I was highlighting them during the interminable waits between stuff not mm. happening. Um, and there is a book. I'll have to find the title that maybe maybe Bob needs to go on his own road trip, but it's like a <laughs> memoir by a sea captain. Oh. Sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. Like a modern Wonderful. sea captain. Yeah. He will be very All right, exciting. let's do Okay. Let's do our let's do our stories of the year. I'm going to go You want to go I've I've kind of been moving my stuff around. Let's go 10 to 1. I'll give you 10, my number 10, and you mm-hmm. can tell me if it's on your list and then we can kind of proceed sure. from there. Okay. I kind of um think that it's hard to separate. There's a couple that I, could, I separated one out. Hmm. Now I'm not so sure. <laughs> uh, now I'm not so sure. Th- this was at the beginning of the year, and at the time it felt like a bigger deal, and so maybe it's it's whatever the opposite of recency bias is against it. But Rebecca, Rebecca do you remember that Amazon bookstores went away this year? They're gone. I do. They closed them all down. Well, okay. I only you, remember 
because I reviewed oh, okay. our podcast agenda from the year. But if I had not scrolled mm-hmm. back through like however many dozens of pages of links we had from the year, I yeah. would have completely forgotten that. Yeah. And the only reason, I, the, the reason it's on here but not higher is because it was a little bit of going out with a, a whimper, not a bang. Um, I think our tenor of our discussion was we sort of forgot they existed. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And going through COVID, people weren't going to stores. And if they were going to bookstores, I think people really focused their attention on independent bookstores. Um, a lot of these bo- Amazon bookstores are in malls. I think, I think maybe all of them are in malls. And people really weren't going to malls for a while. Um, whereas right. Barnes and Noble sort of like in strip malls or plazas or cedar crossings or whatever they call those town centers with the center, the E at the end of the center. I have a particular pet peeve for the euphemistically named strip mall. The um, old town center. And, yeah, exactly right. Uh, and no one cares. And there we go. Yeah. So yeah, that I was my a, number 10 story. I had a section of my notes that was stories that might have been big at the time but turned out to be nothing burgers. And I think this would have correctly lived in that section. Like, okay, yeah. Amazon is closing bookstores. Could have seen it coming. Amazon's closing bookstores. Um, Not much is I'm different. I'm going to go now. next with, now I'm re, I'm reconsidering my order as I just look at stuff. Um, this is also one that I think got drowned out by some of the stuff going on uh, higher up in my list. Um, but LGBTQ book sales, especially romance, were popping and continue mm. to pop. And even in the face of, let's say, I, th- I think on my list I have this as number three, two or three. Um, you can guess what I'm talking about here. That these, these stories kind of go together. There's a lot of yes. titles we were talking about on the recommendation show. Someone wanted an LGBTQ holiday romance. And we're like, here's a post on Book Riot. That's full of like 15 of them and half of them are starring or featuring people of color, which is not something we saw 10 or 15 years ago. And I don't want to take it for granted, even as I'm sort of glad we can. And also we can't because of other things going on. But that I had on my list because that continues to be the case. And I walked in the bookstore the other day and I was still, I still found myself noticing, right? Which says something about how new it is. And I hope it gets to the point where I'm just used to it and we get to continue the work and this one becomes part of the firm but they continue to sell um so that's what i had for my number my number nine story did you have that on your list i didn't i love that you broke that out i have i think we're both alluding to one of the things that's going to be one of our top two stories yeah let's just go you you go there you go there let's just say it book bands to the left of me book bands to the right yeah that This was just a huge story this year. The New York Times just yesterday morning had a big piece looking at the this huge growing, huge and growing network of right wing organizations that have popped up 73% of them, according to their studies, and have popped up since 2020. This is a new focus um, or the size of it is yeah. new um, for the right wing, but focusing on what they are calling parents rights or trying to protect children's innocence, but are really attempts to remove books about people of color, books about LGBTQ lifestyles in particular, under the guise of I don't know, grooming, this is harmful, this is sexualizing mm-hmm. children. You know, we've heard all of these arguments all year long. And I think that those arguments they're making are so vociferous in part because 
LGBTQ yes. books are thriving. The public, you know, if you really believe in market forces, the market is indicating that they want, we want these books. We are buying them. We are reading them. We're recommending them. They're making best of lists. They're getting sold for adaptations. These stories are important. People like to see them. And I think that's really, really scary to the right wing. And so those two things are inextricable. I wish that I had made space on my list to separate that out. I really love that you did of like, you know, all these book bans are happening and LGBTQ books are really, really thriving in an important way and one that is meaningfully different, as you were saying, from what we've seen before. So yes and no. Did you I think break book out? Bands did you have? Uh, yeah. It's, it's got to be I number one or number two this year. Yeah. Number one, number two, I can go in, in certain orders. And I, I, it took me a while to realize that any of the specific instances, and the one that I thought about breaking out by itself was the um, obscenity case against Barnes mm, & Noble in Virginia, yeah. in Virginia uh, um, against Court of Thorn and Roses and Genderqueer that eventually got tur- overturned. If it hadn't gotten overturned, that would maybe go to number one on my list, but it did mm-hmm. and sort of kind of flamed out. I think that was the biggest headline. That's something we hadn't seen before. We talked about the time that we don't remember a seller in our lifetimes being sued, challenged at all about carrying something where they're putting it. And there's a lot of other stuff that goes in. There's a lot of libraries. There's there's specific libraries that have gotten shut down. They got outside funding from benefactors mm-hmm. on the internet, um, particular laws. There, there's so many individual ones that it's hard to separate ones from the crowd. But I think we should talk about the flock of birds. And I don't think any of the birds are particularly you know, worth talking about on their own because they're all part of the same thing. Mm-hmm. But I do think if this obscenity thing comes back and booksellers really have to think about what they keep on their shelves, that's pretty different. Um, I'm not sure it's more or less important, but it is a different, it's a sea change. Um, mm-hmm. Because even before 2022 and 2021, we talked about the most challenged lists, like book bannings and censorships of syllabus and taking down public school libraries. That was a thing. It certainly intensified. Is it degree or kind? I don't know, but I feel like challenging stores is clearly a difference in kind. So it would break through the story barrier there a little bit to me as well. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what this group of people does over the next couple of years. Like this was really big. Do they get tired? Do they keep doing it? Do they, I I don't know what you, it was one of their primary tools in the 2020 election. And that really, like that was very close to Mm. home here in Virginia. Glenn Youngkin won our gubernatorial election on a platform about parents' rights. And at the time it was about, you know, critical race theory and maybe we should have sent kids to school all through COVID all along. Um, but I think if, if he were running today, he would be talking about some of these book banning things. And the midterms did not go well for the really Trumpy right wing area, the right wing of the Republican Party. It's going to be interesting to see if this becomes uglier or quieter or what what kind of shape folks give it strategically as we look to 2024 mm-hmm. in a presidential election. Um, will this continue to be a source of growing power for a corner of the right wing? Or maybe they're finding out that it is not the best way to become visible. It's not the most compelling message for, you know, really the largest part of the base. So yeah, it's not going away anytime soon. Uh, this kind of stuff always exists in a corner of conservative politics and conservative culture, but how big it's been and how successful they've been uh, is 
new in my lifetime in the last, I'd, I'd say, four years. Um, so it'll be interesting yeah. to see as we continue that shift. I have not numbered yeah. my stories, okay. so we're just gonna, I'm just going to jump around, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that, that's fine. I was one, one last thing about that. I was going to say, I wonder, and I haven't really followed this. You, you make a good point about the blowback, blowback against, I guess, the, the, the righty of the right or people running for office. And book bannings are very unpopular um, mm-hmm. across the board. And it seems to me there's been some rebranding or change in tactics, even on the educational part of the the Democratic wing or the left wing party of like, I think they've I think they've kind of adapted to like not using the language critical race theory that became such a flashpoint mm-hmm. that it doesn't seem like it's get talked about. It's like, let's just assign the books and not talk about <laughs> CRT. And then they don't have that to hit us with. And they just get to ban stuff and look like the bad guys. It, it does feel like yep. there's been a bit of a shift, um, which is smart, right? Um, so anyway, from there, um, I wasn't sure, and maybe this is something we could ask for reader feedback on. There was a lot of concern about being, Barnes & Noble stocking changes of mm-hmm. deprioritizing hardcovers, especially without a proven sales record, um, particular kinds of books, especially middle grade books, a preference for trade paperbacks writ large. Barnes & Noble essentially saying, we want to reserve our shelf space for books that we think are going to sell and not uses which sounds stupid to say that was controversial but i think it speaks to this place of like the public private nature we think of shelves that have books on them whether in the library or in a bookstore and i get that um and it i don't I, we talked about all the time when i when i had my um impromptu field visit to a barnes and noble that's <laughs> doing more of the, sh- the the cover out so there's just fewer books you can have on the shelf right and so if you're gonna have fewer books on the shelf what goes it would make sense to me for Barnes & Noble to say the ones we think are going to sell fewer copies, we're not going to carry those. I don't know what the follow-through has been on that. Much like I said before about Critical Race Theory, I would expect publishers then to adapt to some degree. Mm-hmm. Maybe that hardcover middle-grade book should be a trade paperback if it doesn't have a sales record. Lower price point, give it a better chance to shine. I'm not really sure, but I, that one does. That one felt like it was going to have more legs, but I haven't heard much more about yeah. that in spe- specific sales cases and other thing. Have you? Did you have that on your list? And if so, I had that in the category the of things that seemed like possible stories, but turned out to be nothing burgers. At least so far, yeah. um, I think you're right so that if it's a deal, then publishers will find a way to respond to try to adapt to it and still get visibility for newer voices that they are publishing for good reasons. And it will take us a couple years to see those changes hit the marketplace because yeah. of the nature of publishing deals. <laughs> Books that are on right. shelves right now that hit shelves in December of 2022, those deals were made a couple years ago, most likely. So mm. maybe there's been a shift in the kinds of deals that agents are seeing. And actually, I'd love to hear that if we have little birdies who are agents or if you're in that landscape. If you're working for a publisher and you've seen a shift towards more paperback originals because of this Barnes & Noble strategy, podcast at bookriot.com, we'd love to hear about it. Um, but so far, this does not seem to have been industry shifting. And I think so much of that concern that we saw came not just from how personal it is to the people who create the books. And, and within these industry conversations, authors are a huge part of that. And it's very troubling to them to hear that, like, I have toiled on this thing. It's such a long shot to ever get a publishing deal. And then you get mm-hmm. one. 
And then you find out I might not even be able to get my books in Barnes and Noble because of this. And it's complicated by what happens when you mix art and commerce. And we don't like to talk about the fact that these works of art are commercial products that are subject to market demands and that businesses Mm -hmm. like Barnes and Noble have to make decisions like this so that they can stay in business and continue selling books at all. It's really difficult. I don't envy them or their PR departments (laughs) what they have to deal with on the weeks that those stories are out. But I had this in the so far nothing burger category. And we don't read a lot of middle grade, so if it is a burger, we probably didn't, you know, we don't see it on the menu in our daily lives and our daily reading experiences and even the kind of the authors we follow. So uh, especially podcast at bookriot.com. Uh, next on my list, um, someone tried to straight up murder Salman Rushdie this year. Did yes. that just happen? Someone run, run at him, got one of his eyes. He apparently is going to be... Okay is not the right word. He's going to survive and he's, you know, going to be Salman Rushdie again, but it's going to be life-altering um, injuries. Reminded again, I mean, one of the giants of the 20th century reminds us again of the political power of writing, um, how it can be a place of protest, and any place of protest um, and critique is a place of danger. And we, I forget that. And I think this was a moment a lot of us were mm. reminded that in a certain context, in certain situations, um, that this is life or death, and people put their bodies on the line to tell stories and give us points of view um, that some people with knives literally don't want us to see. Um, and we've seen that in different cases. Luckily, we haven't seen injuries, but people showing up at drag queen story hours or um, harassing librarians. Um, I really hope a story we don't see as, as civilian, quote unquote. I don't want anyone, mm-hmm. but no. I really don't want to see a civilian um, attacked. Um, and I'm afraid this is the kind of thing that someone's going to copycat because it gets a lot of coverage. And this is a known news phenomenon. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that we haven't seen a copycat of some kind. Um, I think probably a lot of venues are rethinking their it sounds to me had become lax, had become relaxed, had felt comfortable. Um, I'm glad that they were feeling comfortable. Unfortunately, that was unwarranted. And we're going to have to go back to something a little bit different. So again, it's one person, but I think it also goes as part of this larger anger slash violence in a way we haven't seen before against stories. And it comes around from time to time. And we'd kind of forgotten it for a while. And this was a real reminder that this is still out there and it's not going away anytime soon. Yeah, I did not have that one on my list, not by intentional omission, but I just forgot that happened this year. Uh, Well, and we typically don't don't do one story authors on this. You know, it has to be unusual and it's, it's, it's unusual. I do think, though, that it's right to situate it inside not just what we're seeing within books and people reacting violently to content that they think is inappropriate or dangerous, but it's really situated inside the normalization of violence as a political strategy on the right. Mm -hmm. And we should expect to see that anywhere that is being used as a locus of activity and, and that books are one of those places means we will see it. We will see violence extended there. I hope that this was the last one. Um, I'm with you in suspecting, sadly, that it probably wasn't. I did almost put 
big new book deals for Cormac McCarthy and Salman Rushdie on my list, but I didn't, but I wouldn't have made like the top 10, but those were, that was news this year that we were going to get two Cormac McCarthy. You know, I thought about that. I thought about the Cormac McCarthy sort of, um, end of life duology, whatever this is. I don't Mm -hmm. think we're getting any more Cormac McCarthy books. It sounds like after this, I, I hope I'm wrong. Um, I haven't read either of them yet. Hasn't made much waves for good or for ill. Um, at this point, so this uh, what they, what they say they say um, sell the or buy the rumor, sell the print in uh, stocks. <laughs> I think this was mm-hmm. a case where you could have sold the rumor, um, yeah. and then got the print cheaply or vice versa. Maybe I've mixed up my situation there, but the announcement seems to have made more waves than the actual books did, which which happens from time to time. Um, next on my list, this is noticing that this is water kind of situation, but. Book sales normalized this year. Mm. They came down from the peaks of, of 2021 um, and kind of they're still above 2019. So we are settling at a higher level than pre-COVID, but we didn't we didn't change the tide tables, which is probably what we should have expected in the middle that we weren't sure. I think right. there were several cases you could have made for we're going to go back below once everyone is traveling and going to cocktail parties again. And not talking about books because those cocktail parties don't exist. I'm so sorry um, <laughs> to tell everyone. Um, but I think this for, for the book industry, this is a good result. Um, now, that's attenuated by the strength of TikTok, which we'll talk about in a minute, because I, some of that, everything was down except adult fiction paperback, which you should read as TikTok, I think is the way yeah. to think about this. We've talked about this before. Um, but even outside of the, even outside of that, you can look at the whole board. And I haven't looked at the year to date, so I, I should. We'll talk about that maybe in January when we start getting end of year stuff to look at. You know, you and I are not granular sales data people, but we like to take the temperature from time to time. But it has normalized, um, and it was a fairly good year, all things considered, for books, even though there wasn't really a breakout new title. So I, I had sort of normalization of book sales as. It's important. It didn't make news. There was no like, you don't make it, you know, things return to kind of how they were is not a great headline, but I think that's kind of important to recognize. Yeah, I support recognizing that. I had two things that are related to, I guess, bigger industry business shifts, but uh, like landscape of publishing things. But I didn't note that probably specifically for, hey, we returned to normal. (laughs) Is, mm-hmm. It was not the way I was thinking about the story. But I did note there's contraction in the book coverage landscape. Um, just this week, USA Today <sighs> laid yeah. off the editor who's been in charge of making their bestseller list for a long time. And now the list is on hiatus indefinitely. Uh, BuzzFeed had a bunch of layoffs that affected their book coverage. And just last week, Book Forum announced that they were closing. Um, on the mm. flip side, The Atlantic discovered books coverage this year. <laughs> And started a books newsletter that for some reason I continue to open every week, hoping it will be interesting. <laughs> like maybe this week and they we, figured out. Are you out. befuddled? We've talked about I'm befuddled. I look at that and I'm what am I? Very, is this a one article? Are these a bunch of summaries? Like what is this? I don't I know who the imagined intended reader for that newsletter is. I don't know. It's but it's very, not me. Very strange. It's it is very confusing. Just the layout. The topics that they've chosen, it is, I don't know, it's not the way that I would enter the book media landscape. But No, no. What do we know? <laughs> yeah. We just, I, we've uh, only been doing this for, right. you know, 10 years and started a book media company, but what Yeah, do we know? just, you know, what do we know? Um, so there's that, that contraction. And then I had some a note about 
the push for working conditions, this is where I think my look at macro trends coming into publishing um, really hit is that the stories that we saw in 2020 and 2021 through COVID about people really assessing what was acceptable to them in their working lives and pushing for better working conditions, higher pay, more flexibility, all of those things that those have arrived in publishing. And for good reason, a lot of publishing jobs and publishing related jobs are meaningfully, I think, underpaid. We saw a successful unionization effort at an Amazon warehouse in New York this year. Um, After seeing unsuccessful efforts in Alabama last year, there was a big spate of editorial resignations kind of in the middle of this year at major publishers over low wages. And there were some big Twitter threads that went as viral as something can go inside the world of publishing uh, of editors and editorial workers saying, I'm resigning specifically because they don't pay me enough and I'm going to go take my, you know, I'm taking my talents to South Beach. Um, Mm -hmm. And then just very recently, the HarperCollins union workers went on strike. This conversation has been going on since the summer. Um, They did a one-day strike. Now they are on strike indefinitely, awaiting a a better agreement. Um, As we've discussed, I think they're demands are very reasonable, um, the things that they're asking for. I don't know that the HarperCollins strike on its own rises to the level of publishing story of the year, partially because it's not finished yet. Um, This could be a sea change. It could spar other strikes of other unions at other publishing houses. But I'm concerned for these workers because there's about 250 people in the union and HarperCollins has over 4,000 employees. So we're talking about a union that represents 6% of their workforce. And I just don't know how much leverage that gives them to really affect change. Um, I, I hope their efforts succeed. I believe in all of the things <laughs> that they are asking for and everybody's right to be paid fairly and have a humane working situation that treats them like a like a human person who has needs and you know a baseline level of flexibility and acknowledgement of all of those things um, but that that bigger shift of we're going to see it in fulfillment centers we're going to see it in publishing houses we indie bookstores had unionization efforts mm-hmm. this year that were successful as well talk about people who have been traditionally and systematically underpaid indie booksellers are high on that list it's going to be interesting. Maybe in a year or two, this becomes one of these becomes a big story of the year on its own because it, we can see that it has caused a major change or resulted in a big shift. feels to me like we're still in the middle of that. So I wasn't ready to make any one of those a big story, but the, the overall trend I had on my list. Yeah, I had the HarperCollins strike and the Amazon unionization as number 11 on my top 10. And, and that okay. sounds like a slight, but it's really not. Um I think for me, and I'd be curious your take on this too, the, the flashpoints for me weren't this. It was Hachette employees walking out because mm-hmm. they're going to publish a Woody Allen memoir, um, the Simon & Schuster, multiple town halls around the Mike Pence book. Yeah, I think strike at HarperCollins is a sexy headline because strikes are very showy and they make spectacles. And we're also familiar with what that looks like in a labor point of view and that's a major publisher. That all makes sense to me. But I think this is a specific manifestation of an underlying pillars of the earth kind of a change and that it broke through in these unformalized, unstructured, unfamiliar ways in 2021 to me was much more 
interesting. I think much more telling than this, that these were spontaneous. That saying that we don't want to publish this book goes beyond unionization. I mean, that's not something that's in unionization typically. It's like, we're not going to make this kind of car. It's like, we want to be paid better to make the kind of cars you talk about. This was a fundamental reassessing of the relationship of employees to the products they're making and the effects of those products in the world. And I don't want to diminish the HarperCollins, these particular employees. Getting another $10,000 a year is important for the the junior people, the lower-level people, um, their own protections, everything else likes it. But from a meta point of view, it's a smaller instance than this really fundamental ethical change of people who work in publishing all along the watchtower from the top to the bottom, how they think about themselves in relation to their work. So this feels like a little more of a aftershock than the earthquake itself, which came last mm-hmm. year, in, in yeah. my feeling of it. I think that's right. And that labor strikes are not new, but employees walking out, at least in publishing, because of a values misalignment between themselves and the publisher Mm -hmm. or the work that the publisher wants to put out into the world is new. That kind of organized pushback that acknowledges it's it's one of the flip sides of what I was just talking about of like the mix of art and commerce. It acknowledges that this is a product and it has a bigger impact than just like the type of cereal you put out into the world. We're talking about ideas. These are powerful things. And if we are the platform on which those stories come out, we have some kind of responsibility, which is not traditionally the way that publishing has viewed what they are doing when they produce books and put them into the world. Publishing has wanted to talk about books as products, and we just put out the products that people want to buy until it's convenient to talk about how art is wonderful and we shouldn't <laughs> mix it with commerce. <laughs> but but this has been a real... I think that shift came across because of largely the conversations around George George Floyd's death and Me Too, yeah. that there was a recognition that you cannot separate those kinds of values from the workplace because the workplace is made of people. And that publishing employees took that into saying, hey, we want to look at the types of books that we're mm-hmm. publishing. I don't want to be part of something that I believe is going to be harmful. And we have to acknowledge that some of these ideas are harmful, um, was a sea change. And that was, if we had been doing this kind of show at the end of 2021, um, or maybe we even did a year in review last year. Honestly, I don't remember. Um, it's it would have no been a big know. one. Who can tell? <laughs> right. Um, moving up on my list, I didn't know where to put this. I could have left it off. It could have been, okay. it wasn't going to be one or two. It could have been three, could have been 10. And I think that's telling because I don't know what to make of this comet across the sky of Brandon Sanderson's Kickstarter. <laughs> did you, Same. did you think about this? How did you? <laughs> it's on my list. It, it was, it's a huge, it's a huge amount of money. It's kind of the thing we've been waiting for in self-publishing for someone with a lot of juice to make a real difference. He made a lot of money on this Kickstarter, so has his own media company, but then is also going to be published through Tor and Macmillan traditionally. So it it feels like a, a it feels like a, a, a griffin, part lion, part eagle. So I don't know what that is. Is it self-published? Is it traditionally published? Is it both? Does this mean everything? Does it mean nothing? I continue to look at this one, and you could tell me in five years, actually, this was the, the first and then you could tell me it's the only, and I would believe either. I wouldn't be shocked by either of them. 
um, except that it's going to be one of them, right? Uh, I don't know how it can't be. I, I find it hard to believe that in five years we're going to be like, we're going to point to two more of these. It's going to be Brandon Sanderson and then like, well, RF Quang, let's just use that. She, she's got a following. She wants to do a couple different things. Um, she seems to be very interested in the particulars of her book. She's an academic. She's got a big social media following. It's in this fantasy science fiction space. Mm-hmm. I'm just picking a name. I don't know that she has any interest in doing this, but I, I wouldn't someone like that. Can she replicate this? Is one or two people something or nothing? I don't know. It still feels to me like an outlier. And I don't mean that in the Gladwellian sense of like, I st- an outlier and sort of like on a data point, like I don't want to make it that data point. Yeah. Is, is, it's just a, it's a, it's a random data point. It's so fascinating. And every now and again, I'll be looking at the news or I'll see an update or there's a Sanderson project. Like, wow, I think I'm going to remember that for a long time. I think so Because the whole internet was surprised by it. Well, especially, you know, when we started doing this, the fervor around self-publishing was really just starting and publishing was terrified that self-publishing was going to like take over that maybe authors didn't need publishers after all. And that did not pan out. You know, very few people became independently successful and independently wealthy on self-publishing. And a lot of folks discovered that all the scaffolding and the resources that traditional publishing provides are actually very useful. When this story broke, it felt like the thing we had waited a decade to see someone do. Um, you know, <laughs> like there, there it is. Somebody made $15 million in the first day publishing their own book off of, you know, a very successful, longest vibes, fandom vibes, kind of like community the, vibes, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's fandom and community that drives something like this. You know, like I think Colleen Hoover could do something like this. I don't know that she wants to, given that she just made deals with, I, I think every major publishing house, um, good mm-hmm. for her. But the number of authors that could do this successfully, I think is very small. I would love to see Brandon Sanderson not be, the only this was fascinating (laughs) and just exciting to to, be fascinating yeah Yeah. just exciting to watch like will he do it again and if he does would it be this successful would it be half as successful would it be twice as successful i would i would believe any of those (laughs) it's such an open question still Um, and i don't know how long it'll be before we see another person another like high profile backed with a fandom like Somebody who on paper looks like they could do it. I don't know how long it will be before we get to see somebody try and if they will be successful doing it. This was, I think, the third or fourth thing I put on my agenda. And I'm glad that I, Mm -hmm. at the time, wasn't thinking I needed to power rank them because I also don't know. Would it have been number two? (laughs) Would it have been number nine? Would I have moved it around on the fly during the recording? Probably (laughs) Like just, it was really something to watch. Just very cool. And, and I feel like great vibes coming off of Brandon Sanderson. I'm happy for him. And I don't know that that would have been, that was part of it too. It seemed that like we could be genuinely happy for him. The community that was backing him could be genuinely happy for him. Like a very authentic, couldn't have happened to a nicer guy kind of thing. And it's not accidental, I think he looks, you know, sweet and kind of nerdy and he's got his video going where his whiteboards are up and he's explaining how everything is going to work. Like this is very intentional and very carefully crafted, very, very smart. And it takes a lot of work to do that. And I just don't know how many people are positioned to pull it off this way. Yeah. And it seems like a huge pain in the butt, which I think is part of the thing, right? No, it it really does. I mean, it seems like a huge pain in the butt. 
a Kickstarter for $25,000 like eight years ago. And that was a huge pain in the butt. I can't imagine what, what you're doing when you're, you've got $15 million and four books to produce and you own the company that's going to fulfill them. That's, it's so much. The self-publishing paradox there we talked about before is for someone like this is, I don't know what the marginal value for Sanderson is versus doing these four novels with Tor. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you've got this kind of following, that means you're going to sell some books. If you're Stephen King or someone like that, you're already going to sell some books. So what's the marginal value of taking it all in-house? Um, and I think it's less than people might think, especially especially in certain genres. I think you can do – I think we, we do see people do five or um, – you know, five or six figure incomes writing romances for three ninety nine. That's not something that was really possible before. You'd have to write for Hollerquin and be part of, you know, that machine. Um, but in these author driven where you can build a brand around yourself as an mm-hmm. author and then that's portable to different products, maybe the self publishing doesn't help you that much because pub- there are so there's so many books, Rebecca, have you heard how many books there are? There's <laughs> yeah, I think I- a bajillion. And self-publishing can't break through that generally. They just generally can't. I think the quiet as it's kept thing here is the way to be successful at self-publishing is to have been successful at traditional publishing first. Right, 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 right. Uh, Okay, now now we're in the stratosphere. Let's do another sponsor break till we get into the top. Where am I? One, two, I think I'm to three. Yeah, three. We'll do a sponsor real quick and we'll come back. Today's episode is brought to you by National Geographic Books. The Cave is the incredible memoir of Imani Balur, a young doctor and activist who ran an underground hospital in Damascus, humanizing the enduring crisis in Syria. The only woman to have ever run a wartime hospital in Syria, she saved many from the atrocities of war while having to face the patriarchal conservatism around her. Amani Balor is a game changer. Listen, she will be remembered as one of history's greatest. She's a passionately committed humanitarian, and she is determined to help others escape the horrors that she survived. Make sure to pick up the memoir, The Cave by Amani Balor and Rania Abuzaid, for a memoir that expands on the 2019 Oscar-nominated film by the same name, which documents her experience running the hospital, shielding children from horrific sarin attack, losing colleagues, trying to employ more women in the hospital, and eventually leaving and becoming a refugee. So make sure to read about this amazing woman. And thanks again to National Geographic Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by With a Little Luck by Marissa Meyer. After being magically gifted with incredible luck, a boy discovers this gift just may be a curse when it comes to love in this new romantic comedy by number one New York Times bestselling author Marissa Meyer. With a sprinkle of magic, this sweet beachside romance is perfect for fans of To All the Boys I've Loved Before and Love and Gelato, as well as anyone who has ever swooned over Marissa Meyer's beloved characters. It takes place in the same beach town as Marissa Meyer's previous rom-com, Instant Karma, but this time with Prudence's brother, Jude. So fans of Instant Karma will welcome familiar and new characters, but if you have not read that book, don't fret. New readers do not have to read the first book. So that's good. Pick this up for a sweet new romantic comedy. It's got a sprinkle of magic. It's got some beachside shenanigans. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to With a Little Luck by Marissa Meyer for sponsoring this episode. This is very tough for me. 
I'm sure you didn't have my number three on because it was no story. It's a Jeff <laughs> invented thing. Great. But peak adaptation that oh. I called last week that we saw in the form of Rings of Power and House of the Dragon, billion dollar productions that launched and were funded and produced during the height of the streaming wars. And the streaming wars are now turning into scre- streaming detente, streaming, I don't know, cold wars, I guess. I'm not sure what's happening now, but I think we may have seen peak adaptation. One, because there aren't properties like this just laying around every day. And two, I don't think the Amazons and Apples and the Netflixes of the world are interested in throwing $1 billion <laughs> at 24 episodes of TV every three years, you know, that come Let out every me. 24 months tell you about the face my dad made last week when he told me that he had watched (laughs) Rings of Power and I told him how much Amazon paid for it. Did he he get a billion dollars of value out of it? I don't think so. He said it was beautiful. Just just 500 million. Just 500. It was beautiful. It was a very satisfying moment. I actually did have peak adaptation in my notes. That is how well. You did? I know you. Mm Mm-hmm. Good job, you, Rebecca. And well Thank done. Thank you. Me. And I had I had kind of the inverse. I figured you were going to talk about the, the two biggies. And I was like, well, let's talk about some of the other things mm. that I think are that are good examples of we hit peak adaptation because now we're just in everything gets adapted, even and All things that time. were just like big book club things get adapted. And some of them are great. And some of them are finer. And some of them can't seem to get made no, ma- no matter like how hard they try. So I had pachinko. Yay. Where the crawdads sing, nay, and Boo. yeah, and Hulu's Devil in the White City adaptation appears to be cursed. That thing like can't keep a director. Keanu Reeves backed out. All of the production just seems they're not even mm. in production yet, but it seems to be just no bueno. What's going on over there? So maybe that will exist someday. But the fact that like I have spent a year reading various headlines about what's going on with Hulu's production of Devil in the White City, I think tells us that we're over the hill of peak adaptation. Yeah, and there there's some things in the pipe that maybe will make it feel like the boom isn't over when it actually is. Because I think that Killers in the Flower Moon thing is going to come out. It's going to be a big deal, a $200 million mm-hmm. Scorsese adaptation of the great David Grand book starring DiCaprio and Plemons and others. Oh, yeah. But that was funded. That's already in the can. Like, what's the next What's the and, next one? I don't really know what the, this Kindred one doesn't seem to be going very well, I'm sorry to say. Um, doesn't seem like the reviews have been very good of that. And then I don't know kind of what's next. I presume we're going to get season two of Lord of um, uh, Rings of Power and House of the Dragon. Are we going to get season three? Are we going to get season four? Um, I, I just don't, I don't know, Rebecca. I just don't I know. know. Well, I think to the point about Killers of the Flower Moon, like big flashy adaptations of books that are turned into wonderful screenplays by people like Martin Scorsese are a staple of the Oscars and of filmmaking and have yeah. been. So that's not new. It's, the, it's not even really an adaptation story, frankly. It's not. Yeah. It's not. That. That's it's a Martin just, Scorsese, right. DiCaprio, it's, it's Jesse right. Clemens it's, story. Yeah. Sorry. Martin Scorsese yeah. came across a book he liked and turned it into a movie. And Martin Scorsese has been doing that for decades. Mm-hmm. And filmmaking has been doing that for a century. Um, but that we're, that we're talking about mid-list. Mid-list book club selections are now very popular, high production value adaptations is... Where, that's just where we are. I think that's part of peak adaptation or coming down off that mountain. And it will be right. interesting to see 
how it shakes out. So I did. I had the kind I of like the flip is this Daisy Jones and the Six? Are people going to be are going to people going to be into that? I, I mean, guess if it's good, I don't, know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I was excited about it when the deal got announced approximately fifteen years ago. Good for and Taylor by the time Jenkins read, I mean, what a what an effort with your <laughs> freshman novel to get adapted already. By the time it comes out, who knows? We'll see. Um, yeah, I had that on mine. Maybe one on my list that I'm not sure was on yours is that we got the answer to who was stealing those manuscripts from publishers. I, you know, I think that was an end of 21 story that we talked about the first week of 2022. Is that what you had? The New York Times Did you look at the actual date was published on January 5th when he got caught. Oh, okay. And we talked about it on the so, 6th. I thought maybe it came out the week before and we just, that was our first show. There. Yeah, I, yeah. I looked at that. I did look at that. And that also kind of turned out to be a nothing burger, maybe because we ha- we don't know anything about what his motive was and why he was doing this. Maybe just because he could seems to have been the reason. But there doesn't seem to have been like a nefarious secret business model built on it or something, which is I both more and I less interesting. I wish I had her name in front of me. But maybe we should kickstart the woman who wrote the Gone Girl Gru- Cruise piece to go <laughs> cover the trial of this Oh, guy. man. There's would a you section, read that? I would pay ten dollars for a five thousand dollar word piece 100%, by that woman. One hundred percent. That woman is my hero. Yeah. Um, there was a section of my notes that was just like delightful things that happened this year that did mm. not rise, that wouldn't rise to the top ten. But the two that made my notes were that writer went on the Gone Girl cruise and wrote that amazing piece about yes. it, and the moment where Ted Cruz accidentally made two anti-racist books into bestsellers by holding them up on TV. And I just love that. It was a good shot in Freud. Down to my top two, and they go together, and I'm going Hoover 2, TikTok 1. Would you do anything okay. different if, if it were up to you? I didn't talk about Colleen Hoover separately. I just had Book Talk okay. Baby. I don't think I can ignore having six of the ten best-selling books of the week for multiple weeks in the middle of this. I, I, I've never seen it. I would be shocked if we ever see it again. And then the... It's sort of the the quiet revolution of you can't make a joke on Saturday Night Live about Colleen Hoover, and yet she sold more books in the Bible this year. That is a weird space I, to be in. I think that's why I couldn't talk myself into making her a separate item here, is that but mm-hmm. there's no Colleen Hoover fame without TikTok. Like, and you can't tell a joke about her you on Saturday You have to assume Live. that. You have to assume right. that. There's no name recognition there, and... You just said at the top of the show, this was a year without a big book of the year in a year where Colleen Hoover sold more copies of It Ends With Us than anybody sold of anything else anywhere in a long time. And that means something. It means, you know, it's significant that people are buying and reading a lot of Colleen Hoover books. And outside of the publishing world, there aren't like big mainstream conversations about Colleen Hoover or the specifics of those books, which we talked about some, I think on the Patreon episode where we read It Ends With Us. Like there's not a Today Show segment about the hot new Colleen Hoover book and how it's controversial or whatever. They have Celestine talking about missing hearts, but they don't have Colleen Hoover talking about it. It it starts with us. Yeah. The content of the book has not broken out into being interesting in itself. Like the, I think the phenomenon is the story more than the book or Colleen Hoover being the story. I kind of think it could have happened. This was going to happen to somebody on TikTok. It happened to Colleen Hoover. But it's TikTok is the story yeah. for me. 
I mean, I think she's the tallest tree in the forest, but the forest is the story. And the forest mm-hmm. is, is, has been seeded, grown, cultivated, and uh, steroids injected into their roots. Um, and we could talk about five to ten different authors. Um, I think the question for me is going to be, did, is there, was there, I'm now mixing metaphors, was there enough rocket fuel here to launch Hoover into orbit where she could be a, and I, I don't think this is unreasonable to say, like a James Patterson type figure, mm. where doesn't have much of a cultural footprint, frankly, but sells a ton of books and is a household name, and people will buy a book that has James Patterson on it, even if it also says with Mike mm-hmm. Erskowitz or, yeah, you know, like, a James Patterson middle grade book that he probably heard the pitch on and maybe read it. I, I don't know what he does on these things, but those books sell, they come become a brand because people trust the Patterson name and it's as closest thing we have to a brand that's used like a brand. There are other authors that are brands, but mm-hmm. Patterson's used like a brand, which is unusual. And Hoover... People were going to buy all the Hoover books they could get their hands on. And if some of those said Colleen Hoover with Michaela Hershkowitz, I think they would have sold a whole bunch too. I think you're right. The big question is, will that still matter 5 and 10 and 20 years from now the way it does for James Patterson? Yeah. We don't know. We don't know. Yeah. And... Uh, well, for any of them, right? Sarah J. Moss or Ali Hazelwood. Yeah, or, you and, know, you know, I like, think we've seen the cresting of the Madeline Millers and um, Adam Silvera's kind of the early true. wave TikTok stuff has gone mm-hmm. over as well. So I continue to be fascinated to see it's, what the shape of this looks like. I, It's longer and peakier, but it doesn't seem to be, I don't know. It doesn't feel yet like we have enough data to say, is it enough for someone to have a career where they do three, four, five novels that people care? Mm-hmm. A Celeste Ang kind of career. Can a Celeste Ang kind of career, but maybe that's Taylor Jenkins Reads. I don't know. Carrie Soto and Back didn't do great, frankly. It, did, it sold a lot fewer copies than I was expecting. People weren't really talking about it as much as I would have thought. And I just don't know how portable and durable it's going to be, um, but we're early days yet. And I think there's some stuff about the algorithm itself its relationship to the Chinese government. We're seeing some saber rattling <laughs> and maybe some some unsheathing uh, about, you know, should we be banning TikTok or other things that are going on here? I don't know how long this party is going to last. Um, and does, does someone get the name recognition, the fan base, so that if it does go away or is, you know, dialed down by an order of magnitude... Do people still talk about the books and read the books? And then the other part of this is the Instagram cloning of TikTok. So there's a little bit of diversification in the short form video space um, on Instagram too. So that's that's part of the same situation. It's been so long. It's been like two years, Rebecca, and millions mm-hmm. and millions of copies and dozens and dozens of authors selling more than they could have ever hoped to dream in this situation that I think they're, Vegas is taking no bets about the future of this <laughs> because it's just too unknown. It's too unknown. It's fascinating to watch. And the fact that you can both have sold more books than anybody and still not be a household name. Like, it makes sense to me that Colleen Hoover and E.L. James are hanging out, talking with each other about how weird their lives are and what it is to become a phenomenon like that. But E.L. James knows it much more 
intimately. E.L. James sat on the Today Show for like three years mm-hmm. while Fifty Shades of Grey was a big deal and everybody was talking about it. And probably because the content of the book approaches some taboos and Colleen Hoover does not really in that way. Yeah. But there's there are plenty issues and social ideas that, you know, there's like everything in that Colleen Hoover book. You could make 25 different Today Show segments about the stuff she's trying to get her characters to talk about. And that's not happening. And the fact no. that that's not happening when millions of people have read her books is fascinating and weird. And I don't really know what to make of it. I'm super interested if like if we could time travel into where we are doing this show at the end of 2023 are we still talking about Colleen Hoover what do we what does future Jeff and Rebecca think about all this what do we yeah, know I mean I'm trying to think of the big bookish phenomenon I mean I should go back and look but in terms of the books that sold like wildfire it that second one the one after the wildfire one is hard now this isn't just one book though this is weirder because it's like a shelf full of books but like we love um Gillian Flynn but she didn't do another Gone Girl. I mean, she didn't do another book mm-hmm. at all, frankly. So we didn't even get to see what the follow-up was. Um, Dan Brown, I mean, the Da Vinci Code was the peak. And he continued to have a career and some other stuff got in the way. So <laughs> it, it's hard to know. But by the time we got to Origin, he was selling pretty well. But Phenomenon, hardly. Um, what else do you want to go? I mean, The Girl on the I mean, Train, that's... that was a one-hit wonder. I don't think Crawdads 2 comes out. I mean, whatever. Daily <laughs> Owen's book that comes out is not going to do a thing. Your base case is that the book that spikes is the one-off, and it's, it right. weirdly doesn't make a career most of the time. You can make royalties forever off that book, but books three, two through nine that people care about are by no stretch uh, a guarantee or even seemingly likely, frankly, um, yeah, the most than not reasonable, to have a career. Yeah, the most reasonable explanation or expectation if you want to do the statistics of it, is that it will regress to the mean or even below after you have a peak like that. So it makes sense that Taylor Jenkins Reid is not selling as many books or getting the rave reviews on the second, third, fourth novels after her debut novel. It makes sense Mm -hmm. that Colleen Hoover might slow down. It makes sense that Dan Brown slowed down. To be as successful in for so long as James Patterson is also really an outlier you know, and yeah. to try to, to to think anybody will replicate that. Like, I, I don't know, Jeff, it's 10 o'clock at night. I had a little booze in my hot chocolate, but like not for <laughs> nothing. Those first James Patterson books weren't bad. The early ones were not bad. And these Colleen Hoover books are bad. So they're not, they're not great. They're not great. They're not great. I don't know what to say. I guess maybe if you flip the script a little bit and say, can Colleen Hoover do it again? The real question maybe is, can TikTok do it again? Not can Colleen Hoover continue to be Colleen Hoover. Can TikTok mint another Colleen Hoover that yeah. sells the five of the ten best-selling books? Screw five, three. That three is remarkable. Three, I mean, we've we've changed, we've moved the goalpost a little bit. I I would say something that would be interesting just to see three books by the same author. Can we get this kind of replication, or are we are we talking an outlier on an outlier? I mean, think of would Fifty of Shades of Grey sold. More copies if TikTok was around is a fascinating question. Oh, all I can think about is how glad I am that TikTok wasn't around when Fifty Shades of Grey was big. I mean, I just don't. I'm like that book was wild. Would have been? Could it have been wilder? And I'm not really sure the Mm. answer to that. We just didn't have a situation where again we're we're treading. I'm treading over older ground. Where like someone that has a bunch of backlists. El James didn't have eight books to go. 
rip through. Yeah, just media, media and social media weren't as fragmented 10 years ago when Fifty Shades of Grey was yeah. happening. So you didn't need something like the TikTok algorithm nearly as much mm-hmm. as you need it now to do what Colleen Hoover has done. Yeah. Wow. So anyway, I mean, I, I think in terms of looking ahead to 2023, the shape of Colleen Hoover's career specifically, but then the ongoing mm-hmm. prominence of short form social video, I'm, I'm going to throw a lump in Instagram reels, especially with, with TikTok and see, are we talking about the same authors again? Has someone else broken out? What's happened to the Colleen Hoover sales? She's going to have books coming out this year, maybe even one with a two and a half, two and a half million print cover run from Grand Central, Mystery Thrill, and hardcover. Um, you could tell me that that does great. You could also tell me it goes over by the lead balloon, and I'm sort of in the Sanderson zone of maybe it's a huge deal and maybe it's regressed to the mean. Um, I could imagine one of these book deals mm-hmm. that Hoover has signed, someone's going to regret signing them into the future. I wouldn't expect it to go into the future forever, so I don't yeah. know what kind of event she's getting. Surely someone at Good Morning America tried to get Hoover. But she's just like, I have my own convention of 20,000 screaming fans. Why do I need to come to your thing? I mean, I'm not kidding. Like, we read the profile. She doesn't seem super interested in the jet setty, you know, make the rounds and go on um, yeah, I don't know Seth that Meyers it's, and do all that stuff. I don't know that it's a rejection of, like, I don't need it so much as, like, I just don't want that kind of spotlight, which I totally yeah. respect and understand. Um, yeah. That seems really challenging. You know, it's interesting here that we're at the end of our list and we haven't yet talked about the Penguin Random House, Simon and Schuster merger that isn't. I ha- I mean I had that, but I was like, we're now to the status quo of two years ago. So mm-hmm. what happened? Yeah. I mean, I guess the story that it got struck by on the DOJ and then the CEO of PRH resigned. I mean, I, I think you have. I mean, I don't know. They did anything wrong necessarily, but a two hundred million dollar hit and two years worth of effort and lawyers fees and everything they oh, did boy. to come up gabupkis. I, I think you have to do a, a change there for sure. I didn't know where to put that because it was like nothing happened, and you and I also, even if it did happen, did happen. How would we have known? Like if you just cover your eyes and look at the books coming out. I don't think you and I would have noticed anything. Yeah, so maybe we're naive or apathetic or whatever, but I didn't care either way too much. Yeah, honestly. I think the presence of the story was kind of defining for the year, but the outcome of the story doesn't feel defining to me, partially yeah. because as we established, like I don't think either of us was terribly worried about the outcome in either direction in terms of its impact on the reader's experience. Um, We talked ad nauseum in a couple of episodes about why publishers were concerned about it, why authors and agents were concerned. I think this lives in the nothing burger category for the year because it's a thing that's not happening. (laughs) Yeah. So, right, we're just going to stay at the status quo. And the outcome really wasn't a publishing story. It was a DOJ story and mm-hmm. a judge story. Like it wasn't right. had to do. I've looked at some of the notes. I, I think a lot of the arguments were nonsensical about cornering the market for best-selling titles. That doesn't make. Yeah, it, I the, mean, I didn't the find the focus that on deals way. of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars or more is really was a weird way to go into it. I think. Um, yeah. But that's the yeah. way the DOJ went so. into it. If anything, that's a maybe harbinger of future things we'll see the Department of Justice do that might have nothing to do with publishing, mm-hmm. but that will have to do with antitrust. Any 2023 predictions, general, specific? Oh, no, that's a problem for January, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> 
January, Jeff has already done some work. And I got to say, I'm not in love with this winter crop. Are you? Have you looked at the winter crop at all? Yeah, I've done my... We were supposed to record the draft episode today (laughs) before you got jury duty. So I have done my draft board. And I'm also... Not in love. There's nothing. Again, there's not like a title that we're going to be fighting over for the first pick of the draft. There are some books I'm interested in reading. You know, there's some Mm -hmm. stuff I'm, I think, like, oh, that kind of sounds like it's right in my wheelhouse. There are a few authors I really like. I don't think there's anything I'm like dying to read. Um, Hopefully, we might have the same first pick, but I uh, will find out that maybe, maybe that's possible. Um, but other than that, I think there's a chance where we, we're picking 10, we could have 17 different titles. We could have a list of 17 books. I, yeah. wouldn't, that wouldn't I did check. Either. And the new Colson Whitehead doesn't come out until May. So we can fight about that in the second draft. <laughs> right. Because there's a January through April um, situation. Yeah. All right. Well, go to bed. It's late. You got, you got another day of work and then you get to jet set and go away. That's my plan. Yeah. Well, thank you as always. Thank you all for listening this this year. Um, And there's going to be more stuff coming in the new year. We're going to have one more Patreon episode, which is that winter draft, which we always look forward to. Um, It's been fun. I think in the new year, we should probably do a Patreon episode about new ideas and stuff we're going to try. But check it out. We're so grateful for you for listening, Patreon member or not. Um, It's fun that we get to do this and talk about our idiosyncratic tastes on a part of the cultural landscape that, you know, honestly, not that many people really care about. But we do. And I know you do, too, because you're listening. If you didn't care about it and you were listening to this, boy, there's a whole lot of podcasts out there. Probably something you're interested in has a podcast out there. But we're grateful for you to listening. As always, you can find show notes, bookriot.com slash listen. Shoot us an email at bookri- uh, podcast at bookriot.com. Check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash bookriot podcast. Rebecca, Happy New Year. Happy New Year.